0: The issue of why there are fewer females with an autism diagnosis compared to males is one that until recently received little attention. Well, thank goodness that in the past few years, there's been multiple examinations of signs and symptoms of autism in females, not just at one time across development, and also not just about autism, looking at co-occurring conditions and even psychiatric concerns. This research has pointed to multiple reasons why there are more males with a diagnosis. First, females present symptoms differently than males and may not be interpreted as autism. Second, females may have compensatory mechanisms because they have different brains and different genes that may mask symptoms of autism. Third, environmental exposures of all types affect females and males differently because of basic differences between males and females. And fourth, and I'm saying these in no particular order and I probably missed something, One of the genes that is different may protect females against symptoms of autism or what is traditionally seen as a symptom of autism. There is validity to all of these ideas, to be honest, but more and more evidence is showing that something is protecting females against the most profound symptoms of what has traditionally been labeled as autism. Therefore, they are misdiagnosed or can possibly experience different symptoms that are similar but may not be exactly the same as autism in males. The best way to do this is start out with a high-risk infant who is very young and track them across time so you can see how symptoms emerge and change. This is called a longitudinal study and is really the gold standard to studying autism. An opportunity to do this is the infant siblings of people who already have a diagnosis. These people have a 20-fold increase in risk of having a diagnosis and is called the Baby Siblings Research Design. So far, this group has helped identify the causes and early signs and symptoms of autism, making them a strong asset for not only research and science, but public health and awareness. Now, the design is being used to test the earliest signs and symptoms of autism in very complex ways. You remember last year, I reported on a study that showed that very young males and females with autism don't really differ from each other on some of the standardized measures of development in autism severity. This is understandable and data is data. But what about tasks that really tap into early social communication domains? This week, Dr. Kaja Charworska at Yale and her colleagues, including Suzanne Macari and Fred Sheik, all members of the High-Risk Baby Siblings Research Consortium were able to collect data from high-risk males and high-risk females and compare them to low-risk males and low-risk females. This was the control group, so to speak. So what they did is use eye tracking. Literally, they tracked the direction of the eyes when these kids were watching a scene. In this study, they found that females at high risk for autism showed more interest in the social aspects of a scene looking at the faces than any other group did. They seemed to actually be unusually focused on the face of the person in the video scene and therefore spent less time looking at background or toys. This ended up translating into less severe autism scores and 10% of those girls with autism who are at high risk still went on to get an autism diagnosis. I like the quote that Meng Chuan Lai, professor at the University of Toronto and expert in sex differences, had to say about the study. Researchers have shown that across sexes, early social awareness decreases autism symptom severity. So, therefore, we should be studying these things more in understanding what shields against certain autism symptoms or makes them less severe. Dr. Lai says, quote, if we manage to discover how innate or early environmental components protect females, we may have some opportunity to bring protection to everyone else who needs it. This kind of reinforces the idea of a protective factor. If early social features and early social awareness somehow mitigate the symptoms of autism down the road, this should probably be studied further in the future. And it could explain some of the differences in prevalence. Second this week, I wanted to alert everyone about a new supplement in pediatrics, which should be shouted from the rooftops. Pediatrics is a journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and pediatricians read it. Okay, maybe not all pediatricians, but they should be reading it if they're worth their salt, or at the very least, they should be aware of the guidelines relating to autism. For example, one of the more important guidelines is to screen autism for all children at 18 and 30 months of age. So this week, they came out with a whole other set of guidelines and a whole other booklet on recommendations. What kind? Well, they were mostly medical since it was written by the Autism Speaks Autism Treatment Network, which deals with medical issues associated with autism. But this is the kind of things that pediatricians are on the front lines doing, so they should be prepared to face them. I'm posting a link to the pediatric supplement on the text of the podcast so you can get to it quickly. The new and much expanded supplement includes treatment recommendations for autism associated health issues like anxiety, depression, disturbed sleep, and severe irritability. It also includes much needed guidance on things like the special needs of adopted children who have autism, transition plans for teenagers, autism tailored hospital care plans, and autism sensitive emergency room procedures. So, what are the treatment recommendations for stuff like anxiety, which is a huge problem in families affected by autism? They recommend a standardized approach that includes modification of behavioral therapies like cognitive behavioral interventions. But they're more cautious about pharmacotherapy because it's not quite clear if anxiety in people with autism is the same as anxiety in people without autism. So, most of the data on the use of drugs is speculative. In contrast, there are medications to treat irritability and hyperactivity in people with autism that have been tested in people with autism. And despite their side effects, which can include serious weight gain and motor issues, they do work. Of note in this issue is the special attention paid to ER visits. ER visits for children with autism, especially those who are nonverbal, are agonizing. Members of the ATN looked at the data around ER experiences in families with autism and found that time management is a huge problem. Have you ever been to an ER ever? Have you had to wait for hours? Have you ever been a person with autism who is nonverbal, waiting in a chaotic ER for hours? Yeah, that kind of needs to be considered. I'm absolutely thrilled that this data was compiled and published in Pediatrics. It delivers much-needed information for doctors at the front lines, pediatricians. Thank you all for listening, and talk to you next week.